Mark chapter 6, you guys have it marked, you ready? Let's pray. Father, as we open your word again, just our heart, I pray, is full of reverence. That this is not the common book, but a holy book, the holy Bible. God breathed and profitable. Lord, your word teaches us, corrects us, rebukes us, and trains us in righteousness so that we can be fully equipped for the things you call us to do. And so, Lord, we're here because we want to be equipped. We want to serve you. We want to serve you uh, not in our own strength, not in our own power, and certainly not with our minimal and, and oftentimes askew wisdom that comes from our flesh. Lord, we want to serve you in a way that honors you, in a way that glorifies you, in a way that is, is with your wisdom and with your power and with your life coming out of us. So, Lord, I pray that as we study your word, that you would be changing us as we worship you, that we would be changed, conformed into your image, and not pressed into the image, to the mold that the world sets up for us. We reject that outright, Lord. And we accept and and embrace the image of your son, the image we were created in and, and restored to. It's in your name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. So, uh... Boy, challenging morning because the uh, I'm going to try to to take off a big big chunk of the of Mark six today, uh, looking at some things regarding John the Baptist and also the feeding of the five thousand. I can't promise we'll do it. We may get hung up with discussing the story of John the Baptist, but we shall see. It never hurts to try, right? So we left off with Jesus having sent out the twelve. Uh, notice he sent them out. Uh, with a preaching ministry that included the miracles of seeing uh, the sick healed and demons cast out. It wasn't a healing ministry that included some preaching. It was a preaching ministry that included some healing. And so they had gone out on this short-term mission. And then we have uh, King Herod. We're introduced in verse 14 of Mark chapter 6 is where we pick up. Now King Herod heard of him, him Jesus, for his name had become well-known. So King Herod, this is not Herod the Great. This is not the Herod uh, that uh, called for the killing of all the children around the time of the birth of Jesus. You, you know that story. That was this King Herod's father. So Herod the Great had a number of sons. One of them, the one being spoken of here, is Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas. And he was, uh, he's often called Herod the Tetrarch. I'm, I'm trying not to make this a big history lesson, but to give you guys just some background. Herod Antipas... When Herod the Great died, he passed on his kingdom, not to just one of his sons to oversee the whole thing. He broke it into four regions. And so a tetrarch is a ruler of a fourth, or he ruled a quarter of the the overall kingdom. And his area was the Galilee region where Jesus was ministering, and then across over the Jordan down to the east side of the Jordan, a region called Perea. So that was the the area that this King Herod oversaw, Herod the the tetrarch. And so it's very... uh, uh, an obvious thing that as Jesus is ministering and now he's, he's multiplied his ministry by sending his disciples out, word is getting back to the palace uh, about what is happening and about what's going on. And, and Herod hears this. His fame is growing. And interestingly, he said, uh, as they begin to think about, well, who is this guy that's doing this ministry? Herod Antipas says, This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. 
Others said, it's Elijah. And others said, it's the prophet or like one of the prophets. So there's this big discrepancy about who Jesus is. And some things never change, right? You know, many in this day and age, people usually don't argue the existence of Jesus. That's usually a fairly well-accepted historical fact that he existed. The challenge comes when we try to identify who he is. Uh, there are many that will agree that eh, he was a good teacher, or he, he was this, or he was that. He was a guru on the, on the level of, you know, the Buddha or someone like that. Uh, so this is the discrepancy of, of who Jesus is. Just, you know, just a good teacher is many, what many would say. But we know, and what we know what, if Jesus is a good teacher, and he himself taught that he was God, then we've got a, a dilemma, don't we? If you say he's a good teacher, and he taught his, his divinity, then either he's not a good teacher, or he is divine. And, and people have to make that decision for themselves. But John, uh, excuse me, Herod Antipas says, hey, this is John the Baptist risen from the dead. Now, how could... How could Herod think this is John the Baptist risen from the dead? Well, because they both preached repentance. They both called people to a change of mind that leads to a change in life, to a turning back to God, having turned away from God, now calling people to turn back to God. So there were some similarities in their preaching. However, the interesting thing is John the Baptist never did any miracles. So it wouldn't be a perfect fit. We'll find out in a minute why Herod thought this. But others said... This is, this is Elijah, based on a prophecy from, from Malachi, and based on the miracles. They, they saw Jesus performing miracles and said, well, this is clearly Elijah. Or he's just a, another prophet or, or like one of the prophets in the Old Testament. Verse 16 says, but when Herod heard, he said, and this is emphatic, uh, the, the whom I beheaded is first in the sentence, which means he was certain, and he was continuing to say, no, this is John whom I beheaded. Well, why? And where did this come from? And why is he so worried about this? It seems that uh, Herod has a guilty conscience. And so he is certain that he's done something wrong, and then now he sees and hears about Jesus, and he is certain that John has come back to haunt him, come back from the dead to get him. And you know, you know how the guilty conscience works, right? You, you do something wrong, it sort of haunts you, and then something happens to you, and you go, oh, God's getting me. I knew it. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. For Her- and so how, how did John get beheaded? Why did this happen? And, uh, and what was the reason behind it? Verse 17 tells us and begins to tell us the backstory. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, like Stephen and Stephanie. It's a female form of the name. Uh, Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Okay, what's going on here? Well, Herod the Great had a number of sons. One of them was Aristobulus. Aristobulus had a daughter named Herodias. Aristobulus also had a couple of other brothers, one of them being a guy named Philip, one of them being a guy named Herod Antipas. So if you put the the family tree together, the, the Herod family was an absolute living disaster. I mean, you think your family's got problems. 
the Herods were a, a, a mess, an absolute mess, uh, full of murder and backstabbing. And I mean, so here, uh, Herod Antipas had been married to a Nabataean princess uh, uh, from the south of the Dead Sea area. And, and he divorces her after he meets this young girl Herodias in Rome. They fall in love. The problem is she's already married to his brother, who is also happens to be her half-uncle. These, both these guys, Antipas and Philip, are both her half-uncle. So I know the, the wheels are chugging away going, I'm lost. Don't worry about it. Me too. That's how sometimes that's how families are, aren't they? I'm lost. And that's, and that's kind of how sin is, isn't it? I mean, once you get into, to, once you lose your grounding, once you lose your moorings, then anything goes, and, and then everything goes. And you can get so far out of whack that it's hard to figure out what's what. So this young girl marries one half-uncle, which is incestuous, then divorces him to marry her other half-uncle. You want to talk about fun at Thanksgiving? <laughs> Who gets to pray over that meal? Instead of praying for, they were praying on each other. So, so she, and so it's not just incestuous, it's adulterous. So Herod Antipas divorces his wife so he can marry his half-niece, who's his brother's already, it's his sister-in-law, half-sister-in-law, some, some mess like that. Anyway, John the Baptist says it's wrong. <laughs> Amen for simplicity, right? Amen for simplicity. Whatever it is, it's wrong. And that's what, hap- that's what gets him in trouble. You see, Herod had, had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias. It wasn't his idea, but his wife, his, his now adulterous wife, was upset because John had confronted them about their issue. His brother Philip's wife, for he had married her because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Can you imagine the conversations around dinner and that? How dare he tell us what to do? So there's multiple ways to respond to correction in your life. For her, it was revenge, and we'll find that out. The, The proper response to correction is consideration. I mean, when someone corrects you, and they will, and they should. See, we, we live in such a politically correct culture, and, and we have such tremendous ego issues, like we're never wrong. So how dare you even insinuate for a second that maybe something I'm doing is less than perfect? I mean, when people come to me and say, Pastor Steve, you know, I think you were wrong in this, or I think I would have done this a different way. I, I, know, I mean, I, I know I'm not perfect. I know there's different ways to look at something. I know there's, there's multiple opinions. And so, but, but sometimes the ego is so strong that when you get corrected, your natural inclination is to reject that. Now, as a pastor, I, I deal with this, I, not just in, in correcting others to come for counseling, but also in being corrected myself. And so whenever someone comes to me and says, hey, you know, I think you were out of, out of line in this, or I think you should do this, and sometimes they're, they're just minimal things, it's like, okay, well, let me... Let me get two or three witnesses. Let me see if, if somebody else says the same thing about me. So you come humbly to correction. You say, well, you know what? Maybe you're right. Maybe I don't see myself clearly. And then usually there's a few people in my life, some sitting in this room, one I'm married to, that I say, you know, 
this is what someone said to me. Do you see that in me? And if my wife says, uh-huh, I go, uh-oh, because I know she'll be honest with me. And so you have to have some people in your life that will be honest with you. And if you, the first response, the pride response, the flesh response is, how dare you tell me what to do? How dare you correct me? Because all the time, I thought I was perfect. And now you've brought something to my attention that may need to change. And people will leave church because someone corrects something and their pride just can't deal with it. And this is Herodias. So John, and God bless John the Baptist. He's not in prison because he was out there causing trouble. He was in prison because he was preaching what was right and he was not going to compromise. He was not going to yield just because Herod was this great and powerful figure. He wasn't going to sidestep the fact that somehow in this audience with him, he made it known to him, hey, you're sinning and the scriptures back that up. So my witness to you is a witness of the script. This is what the Bible says to you. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the Bible says incest and adultery are wrong. Now at that point, they have a decision to make. Do I receive the correction or do I kill the messenger? Pride kills the messenger. Humility receives the correction. And so the big question to ask yourself as you leave here today, am I correctable? I think one of the challenges why it's so hard for us to, 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 you know, the Bible says we're competent to counsel one another. The Bible says the word of God is profitable, as I prayed earlier, for rebuke and correction and training in righteousness. If you think you got it all figured out, you got a lot of problems. That's your biggest problem is the biggest problem is you think you don't have any problems. And so we recognize and we welcome in that we don't see ourselves clearly. But the problem is we get so defensive when someone might insinuate a correction in our life that we're afraid to, we're afraid to step on anybody's toes. We're afraid to say anything about anybody. We're all, now all we have to do is be politically correct, which is just really lame. Now I'm not saying we run around pointing out everybody else's sin. I'm not saying we become sin sniffers. The greatest correction is the word of, the word of God correcting me. What, is it, what happens when God corrects you? That's the number one place. You sit down with the scriptures and you go, uh-oh, that's me. What do I do with that? So number one, but then sometimes we justify in ourselves, we, 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 we aren't clear to see it, then someone, a friend of ours, comes along and says, you know, it's really wrong what you're doing. Now you've got two witnesses. The Bible said it, and now your friend is saying it. And, and if you are the kind of person that uh, comes across as proud and unwilling to, like the, the thought of even correcting you breeds fear in people, they'll just leave you alone. They'll never correct you because you are uncorrectable. So I pray that God would breed humility in you so that even if someone's, because sometimes people come to correct you and they're wrong. It's their issue, not yours. But you can still hear them out. You can still listen and thank them for, for caring and say, you know, what, let me think about it. Let me pray about that. Let me get, let me get some other opinions and see if that's true or not. Maybe it's you, maybe it's them. I don't know. But there can still be humility in that. And John the Baptist was willing to, he, you know, he was not a compromising preacher. We've got too many compromising preachers these days. So therefore, Herodias, verse 19, 
held it against him, continued to hold it against him. It's, it's in the imperfect tense, which means she would not let it go. She just would not let it rest, and she wanted to kill him. She wanted revenge, but she couldn't get it. She, didn't have, she had the, the will to do it. She had the desire to do it, but she lacked the power to do it. And there's some of you sitting here today that, you were, that, that, that revenge, you're feeding yourself on revenge. I think it was Confucius that said, if you're going out to uh, exact vengeance, dig two graves. One for you and one for the person. They've done studies, by the way, a lot of studies on vengeance. Because the Bible says, look, you can't handle revenge. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. You love your enemy. You do good. You return good when someone does evil. You, you battle evil with goodness. You don't lower yourself to do the thing that you hated in the first place. You become like the thing you hate when you get revenge. You hated it when they did it to you. Why would you do it to them? Because I want to make them suffer. Well, there's the gospel in a nutshell. But here's the interesting thing. They find as they do studies that the thoughts and desires for revenge actually stimulate the same part of your brain that eating ice cream does. Stimulates the pleasure senses in the brain. That's why we, we sort of feed on vengeance. The problem is, is then you think once I get vengeance, that, then I will be satisfied. The problem is it doesn't satisfy. It doesn't satisfy. People think revenge will satisfy them, but it truly, studies show that it does not. So uh, she could not get it. So for verse 20, this is why she couldn't get revenge, because Herod feared John. He didn't repent. He didn't, he didn't change his ways. He didn't confess his sin. But he feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. So even though this guy uh, was, was confronted by John, he understood he's right. You know, he, he's, he's a righteous man, and he speaks the truth. And I think that although some people, I hope that when I counsel, sometimes i got to say hard things. And it's not fun. Believe me, it is not fun. But sometimes I have to tell people the hard truth. And I pray that sometimes, you know, they walk out of the office, and they're upset, and they're mad, and their flesh, and their pride is just raging. And they'll leave here and, and go to another church, something like that. And I always pray that someday, maybe, they'll look back on this day, and they'll say, you know what, I was, I was wrong. And I appreciate that that pastor was willing to tell me the truth. And, so, so, and maybe that'll happen and maybe it won't. But either way, we share the truth in love. There, there's a, a hard and uncaring way to share the truth. But then there's a way to share it in love as well. So she, she, she wanted to kill him, but Herod Antipas protected him. But he's in prison and he's being protected. She won't, he won't let her get near him. There's a division in the family there, as if, right? And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Or, or literally, he was uh, perplexed by his teaching. He was confused by him, but continued to go back and, and hear more from him. Verse 21, then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. This guy throws his own birthday party. And I love it. It's an opportune day. You know, she has been waiting for vengeance, and Satan always loves to provide you an opportune day to fulfill that if you want to. 
So this birthday party, and this is not a birthday party like you and I have. This is a birthday party with lots of food and lots of drinking and lots of partying. This is a huge feast. And all the big names, this is a, this is a red carpet affair. I mean, the paparazzi is there, all the nobles, all the high officials. I mean, he is doing it up big to demonstrate his power and awesomeness to all of those that serve him. He's just reminding them how awesome he is and how powerful he is uh, in his own mind. Because really all of his power was Rome's power anyway, but that's another story. So he has this big party. And verse 22, when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, I swear, whatever you ask me, I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom. Now they are three sheets to the wind at this point. The older folks know what I'm saying. That's, that's an idiom to protect the young at heart here. All right, let me just say it. They are drunk as a skunk. And, and now this is a wonderful family. This daughter, history tells us, Josephus tells us her name is Salome and she is a teenager. And she comes to do this uh, sensuous dance, uh, possibly uh, some uh, disrobing in front of these men as she dances. And she has become a pawn for her mother to get vengeance on John the Baptist. This is so interesting. I mean, you talk about dysfunctional family dynamics. So she goes in and she dances. And it pleases not just Herod, but all the guys that are hanging out at the table, drinking and eating and enjoying the show. And Herod is, you know, he's drunk. He's, his senses are crazy. That's what happens when you get drunk. You say things you don't mean. You're, all of your inhibitions are gone. And he says, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. Anything. You can have it. Now, I've, this is how I heard people talk when they're drunk. I'm not sure. I don't know from personal experience. Ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. I mean, that's a pretty big statement, right? Whatever I want. And he, she's like, what, what do you mean whatever I want? And he swears, I swear, whatever you ask me, I'll give to you up to half my kingdom. So he can't give, listen, he can't give away half the kingdom. It doesn't belong to him. It belongs to Rome. So, but it's a, it's a statement that represents uh, sort of, I'll give you anything you want. And so she's like, hmm, big question. I mean, I'm a 16-year-old girl. You know, uh, now the king of this region has offered me anything I want. I mean, I'm thinking a new chariot. You know, some new digs, uh, shopping spree, anything like that would be, would be wonderful. So, but so she goes to get advice from her mom, the wonderful Herodias. Hey, your husband just asked, well, you know, what, what do I want? He, he swore, whatever, all, up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mom, what shall I ask? Now, you want to bet she didn't have to think very long about this. This is opportunity knocking for her to get vengeance. I wonder how it makes her feel. And she said, the head of John the Baptist, honey. The head of John the Baptist. Wow. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I wrote this quote down because I thought it was, this is, this, is, this is the kind of mom that she had. Uh, one person said, when a man steals your wife, there's no better revenge than to let him keep her. <clears throat> I think that might apply in this situation. <clears throat> what a woman this, this woman is. 
John is imprisoned in Macarius prison. It's a palace fortress on the east side of the Dead Sea in the region of Moab up on a, on a hilltop. And that's where they're having the birthday party. This was the first line of defense against anybody that might come into the region from the east. It's called, the uh, I think the name of it means the Black Fortress. So that's where John is imprisoned. He's in the dungeon there. Uh, that's where he is wandering he sends word to Jesus. He sends his disciples out. Are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Or should we be looking for another? Because John is in prison. And he's, he knows Jesus has taken the, the gospel of, or the, uh, the, the book of Isaiah in, in the gospel of Luke he, uh, in, in Nazareth in the synagogue. He reads from it. Reads out of Isaiah. And, and part of that says, the Spirit is upon me. And, and he talks about setting captives free. And in, in, in the book of Acts, we'll see prison doors open for Peter to escape from prison. And we'll see an earthquake release Paul and Silas from prison. And here's Jesus, the king of the kingdom, right there in their midst. The dead are being raised. Lepers are being healed. And Jesus read himself from Isaiah that says, the captives will be set free. And here sits John the Baptist in prison for a year, going any day now. I know he's going to come and set me free. And he begins to doubt, begins to question. Maybe I'm misunderstanding something. Maybe, I mean, he was the one that pointed to Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But then some circumstances had happened, some things had come about, and now he's questioning. He's wondering, just like maybe you have. Maybe when you got saved, you were so certain about this thing called Christianity. You were so certain about Jesus. But then there was a diagnosis, or then there was a divorce, or then there was dysfunction. And you begin to wonder, why isn't Jesus doing it? Why isn't he working on my behalf? Why does it seem like he's left me here? Like he's not paying attention, like he doesn't care. And and that's where John the Baptist is. He's in that prison, and, and now she asks for his head. And surely now is the time when Jesus will act, right? Now is the time when he will make his way with his disciples or there'll be an earthquake and the prison will open or there'll be some attack and and everybody will be set free. Something surely is going to happen of God. Well, verse 25 says, immediately she came in with haste. They they weren't going to wait for him to sober up and think about this. She came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once. And he's waiting to hear. New chariot, new set of clothes, some more servants. And when he heard this, he sobered up really fast. I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Oh, no. Not what I was expecting. Sometimes you're, you're, when you're, especially when you're drinking, when you're not. The Bible tells us to be sober. To be sober-minded. To be vigilant. When you are drunk or when you are under the influence, you cannot think clearly. When you are under the influence of drugs, of alcohol, and those things, it clouds your thinking. You say things, you do things that are, that are crazy, that are not rational, that are not saying, look, I, you guys know I was a bouncer in bars for seven years. I watched police officers climb out windows onto canopies, do stupid things. I watched police officers drive drunk. Alcohol clouds your thinking. As it has clouded his thinking. 
And now he says, his mouth has written a check that now his power is going to have to cash. And the king was exceedingly sorry. A lot of times when you're under the influence, you do things for which you sober up and are exceedingly sorry. Now again, I want to say, uh, we've all been there. Well, not, maybe not all, many of us have been there. You know, that's why we're here now. It's because we recognize we, we have a, a history of doing stupid things. We knew we needed a Savior. We knew we needed help. We knew we needed truth in our life. And so look, you sit here among, uh, among comrades who have been there and said, you know what, I've done some things in my life for which I'm exceedingly sorry. And I thank God for His abundant grace and His amazing redemption. Because for many people, the things you've done for which you were exceedingly sorry now become a testimony to encourage others. As God has rescued you, saved you. He can't undo the past, but He can use it. He can use it. And oftentimes, and, and all, He does. He does that. So the king was exceedingly sorry. Yet, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with Him, He did not want to refuse her. He's got a real dilemma. He has mouthed off during his party, being drunk. He's made a promise. He's made a deal. And now he is being called on the carpet for it. And instead of, of saying, you know what? That, I said, I'll give you anything. That doesn't count. Pick something else. He doesn't want to lose face to those sitting around him. He's more worried about what's people think of him than what's right. You ever been in that situation? Especially the young folks in here. We are conf Man, how many times have you done something because you were afraid of what other people would think of you if you didn't do it? That's how a lot of people get hooked on drugs. That's how a lot of people get, get introduced into cigarettes and, and, and alcohol and those kind of things. Sex. Well, what is he going to think of me if I don't? What are they going to think of me if we don't? You know, we live in the, this is the, this is the whole culture. This is Christianity today. You think things that you're going to get judged for thinking. You believe things that you're going to get judged for thinking. And, and there you are in a conversation and you're going to say something. You're going to believe something and, and you're going to be part of that conversation and, and you're going to be part of you who's going to be worried about what are they going to think of me if I say this, if I believe this, if, and this is how he is stuck and he chooses to save face rather than to do what's right. So immediately, he, he couldn't refuse her. He didn't want to refuse her because of, notice it says that, because of the oath he made and those who sat with him. So don't make stupid oaths, first of all. Like, don't let your yes be yes, your no be no. Don't make promises that you can't keep. And then, he did, because of the oath and because of those who sat with him. They were all looking at him like, oh, okay, big boy, what are you going to do now? And so immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went, and, and when he went to the cell, John the Baptist was missing because Jesus had released him from prison. And John the Baptist lived happily ever after with all the other disciples. Is that what it says? Mark records more on this than any other gospel. And all four gospels don't record this story. Um, I, I believe... Matthew has, Matthew 11 talks about uh, John the Baptist doubting, and then Matthew 14 gives this account. John doesn't discuss it at all. I don't, there's just a very, very short, short section 
in Luke, just a couple of verses on this. Mark gives us this extensive detail. So he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter as proof, gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. So it happened. It happened. And I wonder if just to that last moment, John the Baptist was wondering, what's going on? Wait, wait. You know, I'm sure that, that, that Jesus is going to, I mean, I know he's going to set the captives free. Now, believe me, at this point, John the Baptist is free. He is free. And we're seeing this kind of thing around the world, aren't we? We're seeing Christians persecuted, Christians being beheaded. It talks about it in the book of Revelation. Those that hold the faith will be beheaded. Uh, that's not a pretty sight. And we wonder, well, where's Jesus in these times? Where's Jesus in these things? I mean, look, they've just, the disciples are out doing ministry. And John the Baptist is being murdered. Jesus is doing miracles. All these things happening. But remember, John the Baptist had a purpose and a mission. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He paved the way, he pointed the way to Jesus. And he said, Nick quoted it during, during praise. John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And, and then in the Gospel of John, I believe it's chapter 3, John says, I must decrease and he must increase. I must fade out of the scene so that Jesus can become more prominent in people's lives. I must take a back seat so he can have a front seat. And just so you're, in case you're wondering, we ain't getting to the feeding of the 5,000 today. In case, in case you're wondering, we're going to be here a while. No, we'll save that for next week. I, because I don't, I don't want to miss this point. Um, so John the Baptist had fulfilled his ministry of pointing the way to Jesus. And I wonder, we look at this and say, oh, how horrible. And it is in, in one sense. It is horrible in one sense. But again, John has fulfilled his ministry of pointing people to Jesus. He is now decreased and being taken out of the way by God. He could Jesus have rescued him? Could he have been saved? Absolutely. He's raising the dead. But God allows him to stay there to be beheaded, and to disappear off the scene so all the prominence can, come, can be put on Jesus and the new covenant now that it's been pointed to. That's our job. That's my job as a pastor, to point you to Christ. That's our job with people that are unsaved. Not the point, you know, I appreciate you, know, you guys invite people to church. That's wonderful. But I hope that when you invite them here, it's, it's so that they can be pointed to Christ because I got nothing for you. I have no power for you. Only with the word of God. The word of God, the, the message of the cross is the power of God to salvation. That's what we have. Is we have the message of the cross. And so we point people to Jesus. And then we get out of the way. And, and you can always tell. You see, even today, you know, we're, uh, we're challenged with putting emphasis on pastors and, and cult of personality and those kind of things. And then a pastor falls into sin and, and people fall away from church. Like, you had your eyes in the wrong place. You had your eyes on the man and not the man. And so sometimes God moves people on, whether sometimes it's by death. I think oftentimes of Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah recognizes that in the day that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, his glory. And there's this, sometimes there's this fear like, oh no, what now? 
God is moving this person on. Some of you guys know today is, is Nick's last Sunday with us. Uh, till Christmas time at least, but he, he's moving on to Bible college. And there's a, what's God going to do for this? What, how's God going to do that? And hey, you know what? God is still on the throne. That's what Isaiah, God is, it's he's the provider. But sometimes God has to remind us that our hope is not in people. Our hope is not in the person, but in Christ. And sometimes God has to move someone out of the way because you've been putting all your trust and all your emphasis and all your focus of attention on the person. And I pray that when God moves someone out of the way that you recognize, hey, the Lord, now I see God. He was there all the time. And so I wonder if that's what's going on here as John the Baptist is beheaded in prison. He is set free. By the way, Herodias and Herod get exiled and die in exile. Why do the wicked prosper? Verse, uh, Psalm 73 says, why do the wicked prosper? And he learned that uh, as they went into the house of God, I saw, I saw their end. The end of Herodias, uh, what did vengeance produce for her life? Just more bitterness and anger. But John the Baptist set free. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. What a funeral that must have been. John the Baptist said by Jesus to be the greatest man born of a woman. He did no miracle. And yet, his message, his integrity, his preaching, powerful. What a funeral that must have been. Well, let's, uh, I'm going to invite Phil and, the, and Nick and the praise team back up here. Uh, Nathaniel also heads out today. They leave right after service, head up to Dulles, stay the night, and, and fly out for California to the Calvary Chapel Bible College. Those guys have both been uh, interns here over the, in the past and both had a tremendous amount of ministry. So while we don't trust in them, we're certainly thankful for them, aren't we? Certainly thankful. So make sure before they head out, you guys thank them for their ministry. Yep. And as, as they sing a final song, I'll be as I usually am down here on the steps. Let's stand. And if something has uh, hit a chord with you today, or you just are here and, and you know that uh, the Word of God is true and right, or the Lord is convicting you of that today, uh, don't run from that. If you harden your heart today, and turn away from the truth, your heart will get harder and harder. So maybe for someone, today is the day of salvation. I want to invite you to come down and, uh, and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Uh, it's life-changing. Amen? Amen. Amen.